Good morning, Sleepy Town. I'm Bo Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House. Art House Radio, coming to you from way down, way down, in beautiful downtown Columbus, Georgia, from 88.5 WCUG. We're also heard on Arm Radio 96.3 in lovely Charleston, South Carolina. We have a great show for you this morning. We have a wonderful show. We have our guest, Kate Capshaw, with us this morning. Kate, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks. We're going to have a talk about her exhibition, which is up at the Bo Bartlett Center, entitled Unaccompanied. We're going to find out a little bit about Kate. She's going to do a little DJing for us. <laughs> Play some of her favorite music, and we're going to find out about her life and how she got here. So, welcome, Kate. Hi. I thought of one thing before I met you. It was the very beginning of Temple of Doom. Yeah. Temple yep. of Doom, yeah. <laughs> you did that wonderful uh, singing in the Temple of Doom. Um, so, tell me something, if you could, as we were going to hear that, that music. You, you don't only paint, but you sing and you dance and you act. So, tell me a little bit about... Um, that scene, if you could. They never told me that I was going to be singing, and it wasn't in the script. But we'd shot maybe a week or two, and the nightclub was about to come on. I knew I was going to dance, because I'd been practicing the dance, and I was just going to sing Anything Goes, but which I had learned, and the dancing. And about a week before we were going to record it, uh, the producer... Frank Marshall said, uh, we've decided we want you to sing it in Mandarin. <laughs> I, I said, I don't know Mandarin. And he said, well, we're going to get you the words in Mandarin. And I said, but I can't read Mandarin. And then they gave me the way that you can, you know, you can read it in the pronunciation of it. It was extremely hard. It was, I thought it would be impossible. It, it, it wasn't coming out of my mouth right. I, <laughs> I couldn't keep the notes in the sounds. It was really, really hard. And I was going to have to be dancing and record it in one well not one take but I would have to record the whole song I wasn't going to do pieces of it anyway two things happened one is we got ready to rehearse the dancing and my dress was too tight (laughs) and it was too tight around the legs so it was like a mermaid shape and I couldn't do any of the tap dancing that I'd spent three weeks learning I was very disappointed about that we went over to I think it was the Apple studio it was where the Beatles did everything Mm -hmm. and Johnny Williams was there to record the song we went into a sound booth and they started the music and that recording was one take wow and I think the nerves and the you know action go and you just throw everything away and you just do it yeah and it was so Well, let's hear it. We're going to start the show off by hearing Anything Goes by Kate Capshaw from (laughs) Temple of Doom. What year? Uh, 1983? Something like that. (laughs) 1980-something. Let's hear Temple of Doom's Anything Goes by Kate Capshaw. Chakucha, me hatching sushi, shalafong, yeni, tawi, tawi, 
There is a whole song, but that's the that's, end, yeah. That's great, Kate. That's great. You you are <laughs> um you are on. I remember taking my kids to see that when whatever year that was, nineteen uh came out in eighty four. There you go, eighty four, yeah. Yeah. My daughter can sing it to this day. She really? was seven, so she learned it really quickly. Wow. Well, I I'm grateful to you for letting us play it and start the show off that way because it is a colorful way to start thank you now we may have jogged people's memory about who kate capshaw is exactly so now can you fill us in a little bit like tell us a little bit about your backstory if you can where did you come from and how did Mm -hmm. you get here um gosh it feels like they're episodes so Mm -hmm. i grew up in ferguson missouri north county st louis and uh went to university of missouri columbia got my undergraduate degree in history and then realized that I really wanted to teach kids with learning disabilities and got a master's degree in education. I taught and set up programs for a couple of years in Southeast Missouri, well, Southern Boone County, in the middle of the state. I was married. I had a two-year-old and my then husband said, which is where I get Capshaw, Mm -hmm. said, I think we should move to New York City and I think you could model. I was getting my doctorate in adolescent psychology and I looked at him and said <laughs> I'm going to model not that modeling is a not mm-hmm. thing right. but it was I saw myself more as an academic mm-hmm. and a teacher and but we went and it was there that we separated and I was a single mom and I was modeling and then I did commercials and then I did TV and I did soap opera and then I got my first part in a film and that was really the beginning of that episode mm-hmm. because I met Steven Spielberg in Los Angeles had just moved I hadn't even unpacked when I met him to do the sequel of Raiders of the Lost Ark and once again having a big idea about myself right. I, I said well I don't do sequels <laughs> I'm a serious <laughs> actor but I went in because I wanted to meet him mm-hmm. and I did 
And then he offered me the part, which I did. Yep. That begins that episode. <laughs> Willie Scott, I think. Yeah, were. Willie Scott. Right. Named after George Lucas's dog. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to backtrack just a little there. So you were born in Fort Worth. Born in Fort Worth, yes. And then moved to St. Louis when you were five. Mm-hmm. Did you have creative inklings at that at, when you were young like that? I mean, or what did you want to do when you were that age? Or right. When you were, you know, before you wound up in college, what did you, what were your thoughts and what were you thinking? I can remember so vividly meeting my kindergarten teacher. My mother walked me in like we hope moms or dads mm-hmm. do. And the teacher came over and she got down on her haunches. So she was eye level with me. And she said, what is your name? And I said, Kathy. And she said, well, Kathy, we're going to have a great year. Mm -hmm. And she took my hand and she walked me over to a big table with crayons and paper. Right there. Right there. Mm -hmm. And I went, I'm home. Good. Someone A, sees me Mm -hmm. and believes that we're going to do some good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that was so powerful to be seen that young. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was my first step away from home, which probably wasn't so great. Mm -hmm. I felt like there was hope. Right, right. And so that was kindergarten or first grade? That was kindergarten. Kindergarten. You know, those first years are so important. We we take our kids to school, we drop them off, and we sort of like, you know, just forget how incredibly important those first influences are. Mm -hmm. I remember my first grade teacher, Miss Alford, Mm. uh, put... um, Mona Lisa, a reproduction of Mona Lisa on the blackboard right in front of me because my name was B, so I sat on the front row and uh, Bartlett. And so I had the Mona Lisa there my whole first year to look at. As, you know, that was my education in, in first wow. grade was like staring at the Mona Lisa all year. And that was just a huge impact. But we, we know she was staring back at you because <laughs> yes. we know one thing about Mona Lisa. She's looking at us. And she's smiling. From an, every angle. Uh, so from the, with the, you were crayoning, you were mm-hmm. drawing mm-hmm. and... Uh, into high school or was art a part of your the school that i was in was a very impoverished school and the population was growing rapidly so by the time i got to seventh grade which would be junior high the school had been split in two and we were doing a morning session and an evening session in one school building i was on the afternoon session but at the same time they had quit out all the programs. There wasn't an art room, there wasn't speech, there wasn't drama. There were classes on the stage. There were classes in the cafeteria. There were Mm -hmm. classes wherever they could just pop up pipes, right, and put a curtain. So it was very stressed. And this was not Ferguson, this was... Ferguson Florissant. Ferguson. So were schools integrated at that point? No. Mm -hmm. No. Not integrated. There was, uh, the Jewish community was another part of town. The black community was downtown, essentially. Mm-hmm. St. Louis is a very, uh, it, its history is not very pretty mm-hmm. where it comes to diversity and seeing other people and having everyone have an opportunity. Like most cities, many yeah. cities. Yeah. yeah. And so my community was, for lack of a better word, the poor part of town, mm-hmm. of white town. Mm-hmm. And when they started developing downtown St. Louis, which was a black community, then they pushed black community into the lower income white communities. Mm -hmm. And as we know, those white people moved. That was all after I was gone because I went to university 
in 72. And that was all happening late 70s, probably. Started probably late 60s, but not hadn't come to... Yeah, so some white flight. There was white flight and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing happening in every city at that time. Um, What did your parents do? I'm just trying to get back to that for a second. So, and and did they encourage creativity? Because... Mm -hmm. At every turn of your life, you, you've always been a very creative person. Was that something that your parents encouraged? Um, no, not encouraged. My mother was an artist. She did not make anything mm-hmm. that most people would say, oh, that's art. Like, she wasn't putting things down on paper, but she sewed, she quilted, she baked, which I believe is an art form as well as cooking. She was a home artist, and she was a hairdresser. She got her beauty license early, but she quit early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh she was not experiencing a very successful marriage and so thought she should stay home with two kids. Father was very right brain. He worked for American Airlines mm-hmm. in uh, operations, which is mm-hmm. weights, balances, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have encouraged me to be an artist. I didn't even know there was art as a profession because, again, right. I was robbed of the classes. I didn't take an art class. There were no art classes. Wow. I didn't go to a museum until I moved to New York City. Holy wow. I know, Mm -hmm. because the museums were downtown, and downtown is not where you went. By the time I left Missouri, downtown was a different downtown. Mm -hmm. So when you you, you went through school, you got out of high school, and you went to college, and then so something geared you toward teaching. Was that your early experiences in the classroom, or what what led you to want to be a teacher? I think I wanted to be a teacher because I felt like there was another way to learn and learn more, Mm -hmm. because I feel as a grown-up when I reflect back on my growing up, I felt, I feel that I was robbed mm-hmm. by living in an all-white community without seeing anything different and not really being encouraged to go to different parts of town, not the rich part of town, not the Jewish part of town, not the Polish part of town, not the Italian part of town. Just stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. And I know that I was robbed. Uh, so I think that my desire to, to teach would be to get closer to other people because that would be my first. When I moved to New York City in 78, I remember my mom calling and saying, well, how is it? Everyone was afraid of New York City because it was not a great That's true. city at that time. Right. I mean, it was a great city, but it was a dangerous city. It was mm-hmm. probably the highest amount of crime right. in the last decades. Right. Nothing that I would have known about. I was very naive. But when I went, my mother called me and she said, how is it? And I said, oh my God, it's fantastic. Well, what do you love most about it? Mom, there's so many people with brown eyes. Because <laughs> I grew up, everybody had blue eyes. Seriously, <laughs> I'm really serious. So, um, blue eyes and freckles. Yeah. yeah, I remember in Columbus, I mean, I think maybe it was a little different from Ferguson in a way, because, or maybe it wasn't. Um, but when I was growing up here in Columbus, you know, Selma was just across the river. It's not that very, mm-hmm. it's not far. And so what was going on over in Selma, you know, mm. Sunday and all these kinds of things were, were lo- local news. You know, we'd send over mm-hmm. local newspaper photographers and the local writers and, and it was front page news here, local news. And so when, you know, we began to integrate the schools and the libraries, there were protests, you know, there were people protesting uh, about, you know, blacks not being able to go into the library and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? there, so I remember watching this firsthand and, and sort of that really informed me to think about social justice and think about, well, you know, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Even as, even as a little kid, you know, like we, we think about these things when we see it experientially, mm-hmm. you know, once otherwise you don't have the experience and no one's not going to be telling us about it. So, Except our parents. Yeah. 
Because yeah, I yeah, find that that's where the learning begins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know anything different, you know what you're being taught. And that therein lies some of the the issues because if your parents don't want something, I don't think you challenge it necessarily when you're really young. You just go, well, that must be right. Exactly. And things change over time. I mean, because when I was a little boy, um, you know, when I started to integrate the schools, my elementary school, St. Elmo here, my mom said, she let go of it and said, well, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to be okay. But I don't want you to ever bring a black friend home. Oh, wow. And I was like, why? Oh, like, why? Well, yeah. yeah. What, what, are you, what are you doing? What why are you saying that? And so, you know, year, years later, I reminded her of that. And she had no memory of it. Like, I actually said that, you know, like she yeah. was fine. You know, like she had like gotten with the program. But at, at the time, and so. She was uh, probably in a community that would have given her some negative feedback. Completely. Yeah. I think that's true. And she didn't want to alienate herself. From Years it. later, we had a, a um, there was a film festival here, a local film festival. Some filmmakers came and I, I had a friend that I'd met and I, I took him over to the house. My parents are long gone and I still live in my childhood home. And I took him over to the house and we danced around the house and I say, Mom, I've got my black friend here. <laughs> <laughs> we were having a good time. <laughs> He really had. We're supposed to challenge our parents. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I think that's a good time for a music break. I think we should probably take a music break now. Let's take a music break, and we'll get back on the other side.
You're listening to The Art House on 88.5 WCUG and Alm Radio in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, that was Dust in the Wind by Kansas from 1970-something. Yeah. Oh Does that, that our takes me back. Music selections this morning are all chosen by Kate Capshaw. Kate, tell us about that a little bit. <laughs> oh, man. I moved from Columbia, Missouri to New York City on a weekend, July 4th weekend, which is crazy. It was hot. There's no air conditioning where I moved into a one-bedroom apartment with a husband and a child. We slept on the floor on towels because we were waiting for the move, right? The, mm-hmm. the furniture, what little we had. Anyway, um, it was a very exciting time. And that particular song was right at a time where I was separating from my husband. And I just realized that it, I mean, not until now, I realized it's from the group Kansas, but I'm from Missouri. Mm-hmm. And so somehow I was definitely bringing that Midwest with me. And it was the first time in New York City that I loved saying I was from Missouri because I was appreciating the Midwest values of some friendliness, just immediate kind of polite, down to earth. And I was being, the feedback I was getting was that I was like that. And I would always wonder if I still had, you know, hay in my hair or something. <laughs> How did they know I was from Missouri? Maybe that was the clue. But Could Dust be. in the Wind felt so uh, evocative of of not knowing where I was going to land. It was a time I wasn't fearful, but I certainly didn't know what was going to happen mm-hmm. at all. And mm-hmm. being a single mom, I felt a lot of responsibility. And the one thing, the one option that was not in my mind was going back home. Right, right. Um I love the fact that you know you came from there and you owned that, but you weren't going to go back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I often think about, and I've said this before, let your root feed your crown. It's like let where you're from be the thing that you show to the mm-hmm. world and mm-hmm. what comes out into the world. Um, and I feel I feel a little. I want to talk a little bit about that because yeah. I, when I say that, then I was not going to go back home. Mm-hmm. I knew that was more about what I believed I could do outside of Florissant, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And yet I know for sure that I've always kept home with me, that I am a girl from Missouri Mm -hmm. and I was raised by two parents from Illinois. I am as Midwestern as they come. And the home part that I keep in my life is family dinners, (laughs) <laughs> you know, exactly. Three times a day. Yeah. Um, it, saying a little thank you before mm-hmm. and after everything. It's so important to sort of carry that sense of home with us wherever we go. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I when I moved away from Columbus, Georgia, to Philadelphia at, at eighteen, um, I was never coming back. I love the way your face looked just then. <laughs> you were like, "Did I do that?" <laughs> yeah, I'm never coming back because I mean, you know, there was just nothing here for me at the time. I mean, the art world was out there, New York and Philly, and. and up north so a time comes when we start to not get nostalgic about it we um want to have some ownership over it because it's part of our identity you know and we take that with us into the work that we do so you got to new york you auditioned or at least you got an agent what did you do how did did you first get into was it modeling first and then acting yeah it was modeling first remember that was the husband yes uh and he took photographs of me literally in the backyard, mm-hmm. no grass, cyclone fence, 
And then he had them developed, and he thought they were really good. So he said, we can go, and you can be a model. Wow. And he heard of Ford Modeling Agency, sure. which is only the largest in Absolutely. the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, my naivete has served me well. I would have otherwise been terrified. We went on Memorial Day weekend. I told my principal, because I was teaching, he was the principal and of another school. And we got on an airplane, left baby Jessica with grandma, and we came to New York City not knowing anything, stayed right in the middle of Times Square. And the first morning we walked over to, I think, 59th Street on the east side, and that's where the Ford Modeling Agency was. I went up with a manila envelope filled with, you know, some photos taken, processed at Walgreen or whatever was there in Columbia. And it was one office after the next. I would go in, they'd look at the photos, send me back to the waiting room, tell me to wait. Another lady would come, call my name, which I had changed on the airplane. Oh, you changed it? From Kathy to Kate. Okay, yep. Don't think I understood they were calling for me. I'd just sit there, like, looking around. They go, Kate Capshaw. And I'm like, oh, that's me. That's me. Okay. So then I just kept going in until I met Mm -hmm. Eileen Ford, and she was the last. And she said, go to the third floor, ask for George. He's going to give you some papers. And he gave me (laughs) the legal contract to sign at Ford Agency. I went outside, and Bob was sitting on a bench. And I said, I don't know what they gave me. And he opens it up. He goes, this is a contract. Wow. I said, what are we going to do now? You you, you do lead a charmed life. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Lucky for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So you did some still photography Mm. did they promote you on to uh, trying acting or did uh, someone see you in some of the still photography how did that work the actor's strike of 70 I'll get it wrong Mm -hmm. 79 or something it was Mm -hmm. the biggest actor's strike since and nobody was doing anything nobody was casting nobody was doing anything and there was a young man at the Ford modeling agency that handled the models for commercials and he called me and he said, you've been wanting to do commercials. I'm going to send you out. Everyone's got their feet up on the desk. I'm going to send you. You're going to meet every leading commercial casting director, which I did for the course of two, three weeks of the strike. And then when the strike was over, I started booking commercials, mm-hmm. which was so fantastic because it was a really good living. And again, I was a single mom. And so I could keep my daughter safe. while I was gone doing work for six hours a day. Mm -hmm. And then I said, I think I could do more than a sentence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so what was the first part that you got in uh, TV or film? It would be commercials would be the first, but they sent me on an interview for the director, Bruce Paltrow, who is very celebrated uh, TV. He did The White Shadow. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was directing his first feature, and I went in for a one-page part. I was now at a different agency that handled TV and soap operas Mm -hmm. and, I guess, movies. And I went over, did my one page, and then that afternoon, uh, I got a message from the agency saying they want you to read for the lead. Wow. And I went over to to get sides, come back, called my acting teacher. I had called my acting teacher for the one-page part. I said, (laughs) get over here, I'm putting on a coffee. And we studied till like midnight or something and when I got the pages for the bigger part I said get over here I'm putting on a pot of coffee wow wow <laughs> yeah he was a brilliant acting teacher Larry Moss what was that first film was it was it, it was called A Little Sex A Little Sex sounds <laughs> yes, good I'd yes. like to see it <laughs> with Tim Matheson who was a very popular actor from Animal House right mm-hmm. and then there was a string of, of films I don't know if 
Well, I guess Dreamscape was in there. Dreamscape was in there. Yeah, Dennis Quaid, yeah. Yep, and then you, you've had quite a, a and string And then Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. That no, was pretty Windy early City. on. Windy City. Windy City. Windy City, and then Indiana Jones, 1984. Mm. And that's when you met Stephen. Yes. But then there was a whole string of films with leading men. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to go through a few of them. <laughs> Space Camp in 86 with Richard Gere. No, Richard Gere no. was Power. Power. Okay, mm-hmm. Power was Richard Gere. What was mm-hmm. space, who was Space Camp? Gene Space Hackman Camp or was, nope, that was another one. <laughs> <laughs> Just, oh, I can't remember the name of that. Uh, but yeah, it was Gene Hackman. Yeah, that. So the 86. It was Sidney Lumet. Wow. Holy wow. And 87, Quick and the Dead. Mm-hmm. Was that Sam Elliott? Mm-hmm. Yeah, leading men. Some Michael Douglas from Black mm-hmm. Rain, 89. Mm-hmm. Andy of, Garcia, yeah. yeah. Andy Garcia, exactly. Love Affair with Warren Beatty, yeah, 94. Yeah. The Alarmist. I 90, had fun. 97. You had a good time. Mm-hmm. Alarmist and then Love Letter, which you maybe mm-hmm. also I produced. produced. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. incredible. Now, one film that... Uh, I had forgotten about 1995's How to Make an American Quilt. Yeah. Jocelyn Morehouse. Yeah. I have a little tie-in with that. You actually. do? She had just made Proof. Uh-huh. Uh, did you ever see Proof? <gasps> Love Proof. Loved Proof, too. Me, me too. I love the play. And we were trying to get my first film, Things Don't Stay Fixed, made. And it was optioned in Hollywood. And Jocelyn Morehouse took that screenplay and said, yes, I will direct this. So this will be my first American film. So I was super excited because I loved Proof. And I thought, this is the perfect oh director my for my film. And so this was back in the whatever year that was, early 90s. So she took it and then she was going to make it. And then somehow how people fall out of agencies and go on to other agencies, then somehow it fell apart. And anyway, I just mm. read yesterday when I was doing my research that Steven Spielberg bought the the rights to it and somehow produced how to make an American quilt, which I never knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, she was, she was. That's what that was her. That's American what lured premiere. her away from <laughs> <Yes>. yours. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, she's a wonderful director, and she yeah. just made that one recently. Um, um, so anyway, so you had a long career. To get back to that. You had a long career in film, and then at some point you decided to retire. It wasn't even a decision to retire. It was more of I. My life was more interesting than any character I was being offered. Mm. I was at a place in my career where when I would get a script, I wanted to play just about every other part but the one I was being offered. Mm-hmm. Because I was it just wasn't interesting. Right. And remember, I was working as an actress. I sort of fell into that. I was in plays in high school because I loved that community. I loved an artistic community. I mean, that's where I'm most comfortable. And... All the acting was, it provided uh, safety for me and stability. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I was a single mom until Jessica was 13, mm-hmm. 14, wow. actually 14. Wow. And so you and Steven Spielberg got married in 1991 mm-hmm. and raised a large family. You have a large yes, family. How many kids? I think we started, we had four when we got married. Wow. Mm-hmm. He had his first son. Yes. I had my first daughter. Mm-hmm. We adopted mm-hmm. a son, and we were having our. We had our first daughter, okay. and I was pregnant with our son, mm-hmm. and then there were more. <laughs> and they're a wonderful family. I've met them. You've, you, it's all about the mom. I mean, I say that all the time. <laughs> but you have done an incredible job with your family. Thank you. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Thank you. Okay, good partner too. Well, yeah. Tell some good stories. I <laughs> yeah, wish I'd had sure. a little recorder outside the bedroom. At yeah, night. sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, let's have another music break, okay? And then, mm. then we'll get into your to your 
current phase of life. What would what would you you're DJing today? What do you want mm-hmm. to hear? Well, if we're, when we're talking about family mm-hmm. and this big family, when Stephen started to work on West Side Story, which we'd always loved, I said, "Oh my God, we've got to we've got to go into the archives and get all the family video that you have taken of our family dancing and singing to West Side Story." Mm-hmm. And we had forty eight minutes of. Almost every song from West Side Story. One that we, everyone seemed to go crazy for was, of course, Maria. The most beautiful song I ever heard. Maria, 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 Maria. All the beautiful sounds of the world in a single Just met a girl named Maria, and suddenly that name will never be the same to me. Maria, I've just kissed a girl named Maria, and suddenly I found how wonderful a sound can be. Maria, say it loud, and there's music playing. It's almost like praying Maria I'll never stop saying Maria WCUG and OM Radio in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Bo Bartlett, and I'm here with our guest, Kate Capshaw. Kate, how you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, good. fun. Good, thanks. Glad you're here. Glad you're here with us this morning. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about how... So we were talking about family. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you got into painting. It ties directly to um, my daughter, Sasha, who was taking a little art class, a community art class, six years old, seven years old. She's bringing home art, and I'm so delighted. It's 
I'm, I just love it. It's like a panda bear and it's charcoal and it's <laughs> colors and it's the crocodile and it's the green. And I didn't realize how much I enjoyed all of that primitive, early, naive kind of art. She then grew up and she was bringing home beautiful pieces from uh, charcoal pieces from a figure drawing class that she was taking as a 13, 14, 15 year old. Mm-hmm. And I was envious or jealous, whichever is the kind one. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I, I wanted to do that. Well, Stephen said, I can't draw. I can do stick figures. <laughs> he can do other things as well, but he can't. <laughs> draw Mm -hmm. and he said maybe it's coming from your dna why don't you take a class and i said i don't have time for a class i was still driving carpools and all kinds of things so a friend of mine who was older i was saying i want to be a painter and she says you're already a painter i said no i have to take class i've never been in an art class she goes no you already are why don't you make time (laughs) to do that and this was the last conversation i had with her that's a wise friend she passed away that night oh my gosh and i said I'm taking a class. Mm-hmm. It was pivotal. I just felt like someone had helped me get to art class. And I started with the figure drawing class where I didn't know the difference between charcoal and graphite. Mm-hmm. But the minute I started, I knew that I didn't want to stop. Yeah, yeah. Well, it takes that kind of encouragement from friends that can mm-hmm. see what we need. We need to always remember that. And what we can't see. And what we can't see, yeah. So um, you started and you have been with it ever mm-hmm. since what year was that or what 2010 2012 okay mm-hmm. all right so relatively mm-hmm. recently and then you began studying with people i know you studied with nelson shanks who was my teacher mm-hmm. great american portrait painter just saw his four judges at yes, the national portrait a gallery great portrait yes that's a great portrait oh my god four female portraits so oh it's a beautiful and then you studied with other folks as well. Whom else did you... No, oh, I love him. Richard Schmidt. Richard Schmidt. Yeah, mm-hmm. up in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, went with a girlfriend and we studied with him for a week that we'll never forget. Right. This English painter, Richard Tews. It was in the portrait gallery mm-hmm. in England. Mm-hmm. And I loved his work. He's a, he was another blind call like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you teach classes? I want to come. Yeah, that um, was how, that was how we met. Yeah. You, you're brazen enough to to just call people whose work you had seen <laughs> yes. and that you liked. And I know that well because that's what I did as as a young painter. Yeah. I, what can you how, teach me? I'm here. I want to learn. Right. Yeah. I went to try to find Andrew Wyeth just knocking on his door, and you know Nelson Shanks just went and knocked on the door. And that's that's the way you learn. You have to be brave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you did that with me. You called me and asked to. If you could come down and study, I'm like, I'm not taking students. But it's huge. I mean, I I encourage anybody who wants to know more about a craft to find the people that are doing what they hope Mm -hmm. to do at the level that they want to do it. And if you take, we spent three days together that changed so much for me. And three days with Nelson, five days with Richard. These are the... The people who've been doing it, who are already acknowledged, but the depth of knowledge, immersing yourself in, in the mind and the heart of an artist, yeah. sharing their wisdom is, uh, there's nothing like it. Yeah, and you, you, you persevered because you, you continued to contact me until finally I relented and said, what yes, was you can come. <laughs> I <laughs> so need that. what you know. 
another lesson to be learned. <laughs> Perseverance is the key. Yeah. Um, but then at some point, you began to develop this body of work, which is the body of work, which is at the Bo Bartlett Center, unaccompanied in the exhibition there. But first, can you tell us a little bit about how that started, this mm-hmm. the, this body of work? And then it led to you being in the um, Otwin Buchiver mm-hmm. in 2019, mm-hmm. which was uh, just the precursor to... Right when COVID hit and before we started planning the show here at the mm-hmm, center. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you got into doing that. this body of work, which is a powerful body of work of portraits of... Unaccompanied youth or unsheltered youth, mm-hmm. homeless youth. How did this come about? It came about when I realized that I could take classes forever and there was something else that I was going to challenge myself with, which is if you know how to paint... What do you want to paint? What do you want to say with your painting? Mm -hmm. And I had a very quick answer, which was, I want to represent people who aren't necessarily seen very easily. I have personal intimacy with homelessness, not myself, but in family and extended family. And it was something that meant a lot to me because I see those people because they're in my life but a lot of people don't see those people if they're not. And so I wanted to illuminate the humanity of all of us and those that we don't see have equal value. So that's where it started. And I painted because I needed to paint it. It wasn't, I didn't have a mission. I didn't have a, I'll paint two, I'll paint. I just started painting and I was in way over my head. I picked a canvas that was bigger than I'd ever painted in class. I was painting people who were not models and paid to be models, or people that probably came in that morning with a night that was more challenging than mine. Mm-hmm. And the experience with being proximate to that story and being able to do something that I love to do, which is paint, it was it was fantastic. I, it, in every way, in so many ways, I can't even articulate. Yeah, so you have, you have such a... Um it's a process-driven way of approaching the work, which I, th- I found, and I don't know where you picked that up along the way, because there's something about the work where you are, um, you, you, you do these little punch hole things where mm-hmm. you match colors and skin color, and so it, right away it becomes a um, process of seeing mm-hmm. and a way of taking what you've seen and getting it onto the canvas that I've never experienced before with other artists. And that was Mm. one of the things when I visited your studio up in New York, I was just amazed at the process you go through to Mm. achieve the very real, um, I don't know, do you think I'm as very realistic? I think I'm as very realistic portraits. I do, I do. Yeah, I do. But it's not, no, they're not photographic. No, they're not photorealism at all. Um, Because you do a lot of studies from life. Mm -hmm. You're an excellent draftsman. When you were in my studio studying with me for three days, I was blown away. I was like, you you outdrew me. I was like, we don't, I'm supposed to be teaching you, but you like, you already have all this. I don't know what you're doing here. Um, No, you have a great natural ability. And then the way you've gone about constructing the work is a a very process-driven way of constructing the work, which I find fascinating because your color notes are if if one's able to come see the show at the Bo Bartlett Center in Columbus, Georgia, you'll you have vitrines of your studies and mm-hmm. the color process. notes which, mm-hmm. which show how you get there, which is just um, an amazing process that you go through to, to get the final portrait. Mm-hmm. I, I as you're as I'm listening to you in your observations of the work or the process, I think it could be seen as a book of self t 
teaching mm. because the process was learning. So the marks on all the paper and the circles to get close is me figuring out how to get the color. Mm -hmm. Am I mixing this? Is that right? Am I going to? It's it's process. It's exploration. But it's learning. Mm. So I was learning all the time. Mm. I, I didn't know how to make a certain color. It, it, it took me a long time to practicing, practicing, practicing. I would be more confident now and I could move faster through the process, but some of them were painstaking. Mm -hmm. What's amazing is that you're not just doing studies over and over again. You're not just doing uh, color studies over and over again. It's leading somewhere, and it's leading to this larger purpose and this larger goal. Of uh, You're using, it's like, who does the grail serve is, is the phrase that I think comes from Joseph mm. Campbell, perhaps. Mm, I but, love Joseph you know, Campbell. Yeah, and so what are you using the art for? And that's where you're using the art to, to bring awareness to mm -hmm. the situation and to give voice to the voiceless. Uh, which leads into uh, Joshua's uh, accompanying mm -hmm. aspect of your of the exhibition. Someone asked me if you could hang these anywhere. This was a couple of years ago. Uh, where would they go, and what would that look like? And it was a great question that I hadn't thought about at all. And I did think about it, and I answered with this. I said I want them to be hanging in a really, really large space. I want you to discover them as you might discover them on a walk. And so you meet this person. And when you are in front of that person, meeting them for the first time, you're engaged with them, you're curious about them, and you're being washed by an audio portrait at the same time. Mm. So in that case, my imagination was the sound at night, the sound in the morning, the sound in the middle of the day, the sound where they feel safe, the sound of the voice of someone who they love, the sounds that surround them and complete something. In this case, without having taken all that sound or recorded that sound, which I didn't, I wanted voices to be talking. And so I created some questions, sat with Joshua Michele Ross. I said, this is the end game of listening. Help me figure out how we collect that. You can collect it, I can't collect it. You know how to find the spaces and create the emotion. And he's he's, an, he's the orchestra leader. He's the maestro of the sound. So it really does, to me, it gives voice to the voiceless. It, it puts a, a sound with the paintings, which conceptually is extremely powerful in the exhibition. The paintings have single portrait in each one of an unaccompanied youth coming into the spotlight with a black, dark space behind them. And each one is sort of like an introduction to them as a human being. Very powerful work. I, I hope that... Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. And thanks. Columbus is honored that you're here. The Bo Bartlett Center is honored that you have the work there. And we encourage everyone to come out and see it. Thank you. It's my first in America. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> but not your last. The exhibition is up now. And it closes May 12th? Mm-hmm. May 12th. Okay, great. <laughs> so you have time. Come on out and see it. Um, I want to thank you, Kate. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for being our guest on Art House Radio. We are just honored. You are such a genius. And, and your level of work and everything that you've done is such a high level. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of uh, Betsy Wyeth's quote to, uh, to me and to Andrew Wyeth. She always said, work on it until it couldn't be better. Mm -hmm. 
I think that you have that inside you. You, 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 you. It's not a perfectionism, which is sort of a flaw. It is a stick-to-itiveness and a direction where you work on something until it couldn't be better. And I see that in your acting work. I see that in your in your family life, and mm. I see that in your art. So thank you thank for having you. Me. Thank, thank you for you. having well, that. Oh, thank you. And we're honored that you're here. Thank you. And uh, so we're going to go out with some music, and I want to just say to everyone. Tell your story. Don't be afraid. Tell your story. Do you have any words of wisdom and feel like people need to hear? Yeah, don't be afraid to tell your story. There you go. It's someone else's story too. Yeah, we, we all have all our connected. own. We all have our own stories, and we all have a right to tell them, and we all need to hear them. So tell your story. Make some art. Sing. Dance. Paint your picture. Tell your story. And I want to thank our guest today, Kate Capshaw. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. See you right back here next week on The Art House. Love and light, y'all.
Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear? Like you could fall and no one would hear? Well, let that lonely feeling wash away. Maybe there's a reason to believe you'll be okay. Cause when you don't feel strong enough to stand, you can reach, reach out your hand. And oh, someone will. Come running, and I know they'll take you home. Even when the dark comes crashing through, when you need a friend to carry you, and when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. So let the sun come streaming in, 'cause you'll reach up and you'll rise again. Lift your head and look around. You will be found. 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 Have you seen this? Someone put a video of your speech online. My speech? People started sharing it, I guess, and now I mean, Connor is your everywhere. speech is everywhere. This morning, the Connor Project page it only had 56 people following. Well, how many does it have now? Four thousand five hundred eighty-two I don't understand. What happened? You did. There's a place where we don't have to feel unknown. Oh my God! Everybody needs to see this. Every time. If you only say the word, take five minutes. This will make your day. From across the silence, your voice is heard. Share it with the people you love. Repost. The world needs to hear this. A beautiful tribute. Favorite. I know someone who really needed to hear this today. So thank you, Evan Hansen, for doing what you're doing. I never met you, Connor, but coming on here, reading everyone's posts, it's so easy to feel alone. But Evan is exactly right. We're not alone. None of us. We're not alone. None of us. Like, well, especially now, with everything you hear in the news. Like, share, repost. Thank you, Evan Hansen, for giving us a space to remember Connor. To be together, to find each other. Sending prayers for Michigan, Vermont, Sacramento. Thank you, Evan Hansen. Repost. Thank you, Evan Hansen.